Blog Talk Radio. Well, finally, hello there. Um, Better late than never, I guess, is the expression. It's finally time for our inaugural for the 2017 school year edition of Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students. Uh, Dr. Ross Green here, and I am joined by not only Carol Davison, who's back with us again from uh, Surrey, British Columbia, as she has been for the last few uh, programming years, but also a uh, new co-host, Heidi O'Leary, who is currently Special Education Director in Topsom, Maine, and was Special Education Director in, well, it was a bunch of different towns, but Waterville among them. Um, Welcome to both of you. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Um, Carol, meet Heidi. Heidi, meet Carol. Carol is... um, (laughs) Carol, you're still in elementary school, yes? Correct, but a new school again this year? Another new school. Uh, Heidi, just so you know, in British Columbia, they make people change schools um, sometimes almost every two years. Carol, how long were you in your old school? I was there for four, so that four. was a good one, but this That's is my like third school since you and I started working together. There you go. They, they move you guys around. We are yeah, also joined. Now it appears by Tom Ambrose. Tom, how are you? Doing well. How are you? I am well. And Tom is no longer an assistant superintendent in Maine. He is now a superintendent in New Hampshire. So, Tom, congratulations on that. Um, congratulations, so Tom. So now, now we can say we have two principals, a special education director, and a superintendent. We are... We are, um, well, I was going to say we're moving up in the world, but that would make it sound like it's not moving up to be a principal, and um, we're glad to have all of you. So why why should I say anything that's going to get me into trouble with somebody here, um, which I was basically doing right then. Um, I'm glad we were able to gather for this program. As, as you all know, uh, Mondays have been horrible for me um, for September and October, so we're squeezing this one in, and hopefully we can get back on track um, sometime soon. We have a bunch of emails that have accumulated, but um, I thought we would start by having Heidi talk a little bit, and Heidi's going to be a a regular co-host on the program. Um, But Heidi was doing some very exciting things in her old school system last year and is trying to get the ball rolling in her new school system this year about using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems as a key ingredient in um, writing IEPs, writing 504s, writing FBAs, writing behavior plans. Let's just cover the IEP piece today because that's the part that seems to finally be done and that I'll be posting on the Lives in the Balance website tonight. Heidi, maybe you could talk a little bit about Uh, the ALSIP and IEPs and how those two can go together. What I've been saying in my talks lately is that if you do an ALSIP, it practically writes the IEP for you. I don't know if you'd go that far, but let's hear how far you would go. 
Yeah, I, I'd actually have to agree with you, Ross, is that um, definitely using the lagging scales or the ALSEP is, um, has really helped write IEPs and be very clear as to what the needs are um, and then being able to actually write um, the goals that are aligned to it. Um, I had a, uh, a coordinator the other day send me a text message just thanking me so much um, for showing her this and showing her this method that it just became so clear and efficient um, that she just can't wait to learn more. Um, and as I work through each of the IEP meetings, I find that uh, it just helps to really drive from start to finish what needs to go into the IEP. Uh, for example, um, using the um, lagging skills deficits ensure that we have a handle on, you know, like what you have said in the past is on what, what's making life so difficult for the student and that's really where the needs are. Um, and that's where I list them in the IEP is under the, under the needs section, under the functional performance. Uh, we talk about skill deficits such as flexibility, adaptability, frustration, tolerance, and problem solving. And then it aligns perfectly to what the main DOE says about identifying the functional skill deficits and behaviors that interfere uh, with the student's ability to access the education program. And then going on to address the present level, um, which becomes your narrative of the unsolved pro problems and the specific expectations that a student is having difficulty meeting. And it's just really has worked perfectly. I spent a lot of time uh, writing and rethinking and um, seeing how this would all fit together. And I, I think people will really like the outcome of what they see in this IEP. And I've been using it for almost a year now in both districts and when I was up in Waterville and then now here in RSU 75. And people are just amazed at what, how, how clear it is and the clarity of each section and really what it is that each student has to work on in order to be able to meet those challenges in the settings that, that they're facing. Contrast so. that, if you would, with a um, traditional IEP and um, how this makes such a big difference. Yeah, so how it makes a big difference really is the fact that we are um, we're being very clear from start to finish. And before people would write IEPs and they were quite lengthy, um, and sometimes even though we were fo focusing on data, it wasn't clear what skills specific under the functional section that we were really working on. And what it's done is, again, it is, you know, when you start with needs, you start with deficits. For example, um, some of the ones that we've used or that I've come up with and, and is when working with the students and with the families, we, we talk about difficulties with, um, for example, walking through the hallway. And then what does that look like functionally? Um, so the, let me just get to this one. Difficulty attending to or accurately interpreting social cues. Difficulty starting conversations. And before, what they would do is they talk specifically about the behavior and what the outcome of the behavior looked like. And so parents would walk into IEP meetings and they'd hear about the behaviors all over again. And what this does, the difference is, is what this done, does, it talks specifically about the deficit or the lagging skill that we're focusing on. It narrows us in. It, 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 again, all I can really say is it provides clarity for everybody. Um, so once again, it sounds like we are moving from focusing primarily on behavior yes. to focusing instead on the lagging skills and unsolved problems that are causing that behavior. 
Yeah, and, um, it really, it really is. Uh, I just, um, it becomes measurable as well because people are like, well, how do you measure this? And it, and it just makes it clear that here's where we start and here's where we end up. And it's just, it's such a clear picture. I just, I can't say enough about it. And people that I'm working with are, are, are extremely excited about how it's looking on, on paper, but also that it's a true and accurate picture of why the student needs special education. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Presumably, it would be just as good for writing a 504 plan, in which case the student wouldn't be receiving special education, but people would still be focused on lagging skills and unsolved problems. They would be, and then what they would be also focusing on with a 504 is the accommodations and how do you provide the supports necessary to sort of what we call level the playing field in this. And when we're talking about 504 plans, you know, because it's about accommodations, but what are the skills that are get what are the skill deficits or the lagging skills that are getting in the way of them being able to access their education? Absolutely. Now, Tom and Carol, you all have seen your share of IEPs in your day. Um, any immediate reactions to what Heidi is saying? Well, I'm personally, I'm taking lots of notes because it really makes a lot of sense. And we have some, uh, some IEP meetings coming up in the next couple of weeks for the 20 or so students here at the school that, uh, you know, have what we call low incidence special needs in the school. And, uh, and I do love the idea of um, having those accommodations because I think that for me is where a lot of times when, when students have challenging behaviors, um, the teachers don't necessarily, the mindset might not necessarily be there that we need to adapt or we need to change something to allow that student to be successful. In You know, the, the old mindset is that the student needs to change. So I, I love that. I put a big star beside that part because it really does kind of turn turn the situation around where we have the power to to adapt things within our school environment and within the interactions and, and the experience that that child has at school in order to, to help them be successful while we are teaching them the skills and yeah. not just waiting for the child to change and, you know, feeling frustrated until that happens. So yeah. love that part. I wish I could show you people's, the parents' faces when we talk about their children this way rather than them coming in and hearing all the horrible things that their children have done with the long list of behaviors that they've heard multiple times. But every time I've done this, I just, the feeling that and the, and the, the vision that I get of these parents it's just almost like a relief, and and if that means anything to people, I mean, obviously, you, you just, as a director, I feel so satisfied and like, okay, we're finally moving in the right direction, and really this, you know, the ALSEP and, and by using this model and this framework has really helped move us forward, and it's going to take some time because it's been a, it's a shift in, you know, more than 25 years of thinking of this is how you run an IEP meeting, and these are the things that you throw on the table, but it's really helping to guide people to think in a different way. Tom, what do you think? I think it's great. I, I think that the um, just kind of listening to this whole conversation, the, the key <clears throat> the key themes that I, I'm thinking about are tone, relationships, and um, working together to solve problems. I mean, if you if you take any meeting where people are are sitting around the table and feeling incredibly tense or angry or frustrated or hurt, the only way to move forward is to listen. And, and I think that the, the ALSEP really sets you up to focus on what the student needs and to listen to each other and then come to consensus about the next steps. I think a lot of times IEP meetings become us against them where you, you have the parents who want one thing for their kid 
and the school is saying either, you know, we're not willing to do that or we want to do more, quote, it feels like to your kid than what you're comfortable with. And I really am hearing that that, that process of focusing on working together shuts that down and opens up the dialogue, which is the only way to really move forward productively. So true. <laughs> um, Heidi, uh, my recollection is that the rate of special education placement in your old school system was 27%. Do I remember that right? Yes, that's correct, 27 28%. Got it, um, which is rather astronomical. Yes. Um, mm. I'm thinking that there's a tie-in between um, a IEP written with the ELSA providing most of the information and um, its potential for um, reducing special education referrals um, and special education placements. I don't know if your mind has taken you there, but my mind does. Mm -hmm. um, you and I have had this conversation before that so often classroom teachers feel like if they need additional information about a student or they're concerned about a student, often they feel like their only real option is to refer for a special education evaluation. And often they're feeling like the only place the kid is going to get what he really needs is through special education. Um, I wonder how much that has to do with, number one, systemic issues, but number two, the ways in which IEPs have historically been written and whether, and I don't want to take this too far, so pull me back if you think I need to be okay. pulled back, but yeah. um, I'm thinking that focusing on lagging skills and unsolved problems as the primary ingredients of an IEP could make a dent in a lot of that. You, you actually don't have to do a special ed referral to get an LSUP completed. What do you think? I think that it's two parts to that. I think that we need to help our um, regular ed staff and our schools, in fact, focus on the RTI part of this and using it because a lot of times we don't necessarily, and I'm speaking for myself in the districts that I've been in, is that we didn't, don't really understand behavior, and we have to look at it in a different way. Um, and I, I know I use this quote a lot, but I'll, I'll quote you again, is the behaviors aren't the unsolved problems, they're the byproducts of the unsolved problems. And so if we can shift people in talking about that and understanding that piece of it, that will definitely help reduce referrals and being able to work on, um, you know, those those. The, the lagging skills, I guess, is what um, prior to that referral to see if it works as part of the RTI. Now, for the IEP purposes, what it does is it helps so that it's not a life sentence because you have behavior. And so just because you're in special education and we never figure out what the unsolved problems are, by working on these specific areas and, and working on those and setting goals, we reduce it so maybe that there's not a need and we can get to the real issue. Maybe it's actually a learning disability. Maybe it's the dis difficulty with reading, difficulty with math instead, and the behaviors, again, are a byproduct of that. And so it helps us to figure it out sooner so maybe we can say, okay, does the student continue to need special education? And then if not, then we do what we need to do to dismiss a child. And hopefully, if we get this into place and start looking at it this way, we reduce the numbers by on the opposite end of it by, um, you know, looking at the behaviors and reducing the need and dismissing. That's what I'm hoping for anyway. I, I think that that was very well said, and, and I'm, I'm very 
optimistic that we can get schools to develop a culture where kids do well if they can, and then we have conversations about behaviors being the symptoms yeah. of the lagging skills. And I, I think if you could put the work, the heart of all of this work to support human beings in mm-hmm. becoming the best that they can be, I think that, that those three things combined is the most powerful part of this work, combined with really having some listening skills in the empathy step and understanding how to drill for information and how to accurately figure out which problem you want to solve. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, it, Ross, I, I always feel like it's some people come to me and they say, well, where, where do you start? And, and I, I always, well, I asked them, I said, well, it depends on your lens. You know, if your lens is the kids do well if they can, then we start, you know, the next step would be to look at the behaviors as symptoms of the lagging skills and then filling out the ALSEP. But ultimately, I always like to say to people, you know, really you start with empathy by listening mm-hmm. to people and trying to understand their concerns and perspective because if we just do that, we're off to a great start. That that feels good to people no matter who they are and it gives them an opportunity to grow, to feel brings, safe. Yeah, I agree with you and I think what it also does is when you start with that, it brings challenging parents down as well. And so the parents become challenging because they're defending their their children and their anxiety and their their lagging skills begin to show. So if you work with them and you talk about it in this way, it actually helps to reduce that anxiety so that when they come to IEP meetings and or other any, any other meeting, you know, they feel like they have a relationship now with the people that are working with their children. Yeah, I agree with that. For sure. There you have it. Heidi, anything else that you want to say about that? No, I just um I'm excited for people to be able to see it and uh it's just really been a labor of love for the last over over the last year now and I hope people uh people kind of enjoy working with it and can see um the purpose of why I wrote it the way I wrote it. So, um well, let's hope for that. <laughs> and 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 what we've invited people to do, it's now posted on the website by the way, but um okay. what I've invited people to do is let us know um if it's going to work for them in their school system. Um, because we're happy to post an IEP for each state and each province um, to make it work. So, Carol, uh, if you go to the What's New section on the Lives in the Balance website, you'll find it. Let us know if it's going to work in British Columbia based on the way uh, things are written there. Um, We want to make sure this works for people. This one was written for Maine based on United States special education law and IEP requirements, but also those of Maine. Heidi, as I understand it, but we understand that things are a little bit different in different places, so let us know if it will work in your school system, and we'll make whatever changes we need to make to make it work wherever you are. Fantastic. Sound good? (coughs) Sounds like a plan to me. Be great. (laughs) Shall we turn our attention to a few emails? We've got a bunch that have accumulated since we were last on. Here's, Here's one that I wanted to make sure we covered today. This one says, hi, I'm a school counselor in several schools and have taken the CPS training. I'm trying to get CPS up and running in my schools, but still have a long way to go. In the meantime, I constantly see teachers and administrators having kids miss recess as the most common knee-jerk for misbehavior. My gut tells me this is a really bad idea, but I'm not sure how to back that up. What do you think of this, and what could I say to them about that practice? in the short term before they are all aware of and trained in CPS. 
What could I tell them they could change right now instead of taking recess away? And, of course, I'll have an opinion on that one, but at the moment it's fair game and up for grabs. Who wants to take it? Mm-hmm. And, by the way, we have now been joined by Nina, who is our fourth person on the program, our fourth co-host. Nina, welcome. I'm sorry I'm so late. Thank you. No worries. Who wants to take that one? This always used to... This is where I always think about, you know, this is where Tom would have those uh, arguments with himself, and I use, I often use. Tom's I was trying to give someone else himself. airspace. <laughs> well, one of the things that, so you can jump into Tom, but I know that this is one of your okay. babies. Um, but uh, for me, it's kind of, you know, that sense of curiosity, like what, um, what are you hoping will be the outcome of that, of that intervention or that consequence? And you know, when people, you know, probably likely will say, you know, well, they'll. They'll think about their behavior, or they'll, you know, they'll they'll, you know, be more motivated next time. You know, they're missing something, so they'll make them, and then helping them just like with gentle kind of enlightening questions, helping you know, like, well, how many, you know, how many times have you used this intervention before? What was the outcome? Uh, you know, and kind of helping them to to have that aha moment of like, it's not changing anything. So that's that's one way that I like to kind of approach it is is. Um, you know, just to kind of start to shine the light on the fact that you're doing this and it's, A, taking away your time and, B, not changing anything. <clears throat> yeah. So I would say, and Nina, I, I, love, I always love to hear what you have to say about this, and mm-hmm. I, I would just say that <clears throat> my, my favorite, when I first met Ross, it was longer now than I'd like to admit. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while, huh, Ross? Um, it has I, I would say, no, notice how Ross said nothing. <laughs> but, but well, you, you were I, still I talking, that, Tom. I, I thank you, Ross. So my 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 first time, first few times meeting Ross, we were talking, and he's like, "So what do you do with a teacher who's like, I'm not a social worker. I teach this, and if they get it, they get it, and if they don't get it, they don't do the work. That's their problem." And I remember sitting there feeling very stumped the first time he asked me that question because I was a very new leader who was more focused on just making sure that I didn't overspend my budget than than anything else, right? That was supposed to be a joke. I was just kidding. Um, but, but I do think that, that for new leaders, moving unmotivated people or people who appear to not be unmotivated started with me actually thinking about applying the model to adults. So asking myself, you know, if this person could do well with behaviorally challenging kids, they probably would, because who wants to come to school and beat their head against the wall? And I'm thinking of Mrs. Plumpton Ross, you know, and mm-hmm. and working really hard to figure out what it was that she could do to control the herself to make the relationship better. And so I think that, that having a, a, a conversation with someone around their their initial hesitation to do this kind of work really boils down to figuring out what's going on for them. And again, with all of this, it takes time and a good relationship. But I think if I just ask people, I notice sometimes that, that, you know, Johnny has a really hard time in your class. What's up with that? What's happening? They usually tell me because it just felt good to get it off their chest. But usually within that, we could figure it out. Always with an eye, in my mind, on getting that lens moved toward, you know, Teachers do well if they can, and staff do well if they can, and we're all just trying to help each other and 
the struggle is real, but that lens of kids do well if they can is so hard for some people to see. Mm. Nina, I bet you've got something to add here. <laughs> well, I just was thinking very much like what Tom was saying, that uh, a lot is really trying to dig around a little bit to see what, you know, what's the thinking behind taking recess away. And, and, and sometimes you have to kind of put it on the table by saying, you know, I wonder if there's a way that we could um, do something else instead because is this working? Is taking away recess changing the behavior? And often um, everyone agrees that it's not changing the behavior. So, well, could we try my try this way? And sometimes as a staff you have to agree and, and have lots of hard conversations, but decide together that you're going to try to take recess off the table and um, slowly start different different approaches to make those changes because the recess, isn't, it's not working, um, and there's so much out there that talks about it that's not just sometimes I'd like to show other resources, not just, um, you know, kind of what I'm thinking and I'm talking about. There's a lot about recess, so... Um, it's kind of a nice place to start sometimes with the recess because it's an e it's kind of an easy thing to agree that you're not going to do that. Uh, it's kind of like suspension or other things that you just decide this is not what we're going to do, but now let's explore what we're going to do instead. So it might be a good way just to begin. Uh, I think I'll weigh in. This is a major thing, and that is, it's the big divide between whether to focus on behavior and modifying it or the problems that are causing those behaviors and solving them. One would be very hard-pressed to uh, make a case that holding a kid in for recess solves the problems that are causing the behaviors that we're holding the kid in from recess for in the first place. So it's quite clear that holding a kid in from recess is purely a behavior modification strategy. It's an adult-imposed consequence, nothing more, nothing less. And adult-imposed consequences are focused on modifying behavior. And I think we lose a lot of kids because we are primarily focused on modifying their behavior instead of focusing on solving the problems that are causing those behaviors. So I guess there's research telling us, of course, quite a bit of it, that modifying behavior works at improving behavior. Now, there are some Achilles heels to that research, namely that often the behavioral improvements dissipate once the behavior modification program is removed, which is not the idea, and that the more aggressive a kid gets and the older a kid gets, the less behavior modification makes sense. Um, but I guess the big issue is you're not even thinking about adult-imposed consequences if you're focused on solving the problems that are causing the behaviors. And for me, um, that's the monumental shift that needs to occur. I get it. The data tell us that sometimes you improve a kid's behavior by modifying that behavior. But here's what else the data tell us. You also improve that kid's behavior every bit as much by solving the problems that are causing those behaviors, but with a few added bonuses. Number one, you are solving problems, not just modifying behaviors. Surely we're not satisfied with just modifying behavior, but leaving the unsolved problems left unsolved 
And there are data telling us that uh, when you are solving problems collaboratively and proactively, you are also teaching the kid the skills he or she is lacking. And that's something that behavior modification programs weren't even designed to do. So for me, um, holding a kid in from recess, uh, I don't know, if you're trying to tell them that you didn't like his behavior, my attitude is you could just tell him. You don't have to uh, uh, throw a consequence at him. But consequences are merely for modifying behavior. And I'm interested in what I've been calling lately the three-for-one sale. I'm not just interested in improving behavior. I'm interested in also solving the problems that are causing that behavior and teaching the kid the skills that he or she is lacking. So in this email, the question is, what can you say to them about that? And I think that's the answer to that. But what can you tell them they can change right now instead of taking a recess away? The biggest favor they could do this kid is figure out what unsolved problems are causing the challenging behaviors that are causing us to take recess away in the first place. Um, go deeper. Don't just stop at the behavior. If we just stop at the behavior, all we will think to do is modify that behavior. But if we identify the problems that are causing that behavior, now a, a massive realm of other interventions open up to us, including solving those problems. But you need the list first. And how do you make that list? Well, Heidi was talking about it in the beginning as it relates to the writing of IEPs. Use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems to do the heavy lifting for you. To me, that's the big shift. I would agree with you. That was excellent. <laughs> well, good. I like when people agree with me. So, <laughs> I'm fine when people don't agree with me, but it certainly goes a lot faster when people agree with me. Yeah. What um, you just said, though, I was in an IEP meeting this morning, and I did exactly that, and it really, again, it just changed the whole tone of the meeting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people kept wanting to talk about the behavior, and here's what, what it looks like, and here's what he's doing, and we, I just kept shifting them, and the result was so, 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 so much better. It really is something, isn't it? Yeah, I just uh, amaze every day when I use it. That is fantastic. Here's another uh, here's another ELSIP question that is very practical. Uh, it looks like this one was submitted this very day, so seldom do people get such a quick response to a problem <laughs> submitted. But here we go. Um, how long do you wait? This is worded beautifully based on the current discussion. How long do you wait when behaviors are occurring to complete the ALSIP? Not in the heat <laughs> of the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that applies to everything. That's very true. <laughs> um, Anyone, you know, one of the things, Nina, one how of long the do you wait to do an ALSIP? You know, that's a great question. Um, we've always tied it into sort of how we've always um, decided when to meet on children, and, and usually, you know, it really does depend if it's, um, you know, a few days and you realize that a child is um, having difficulty in the classroom and it's not improving, um, we, we do as quickly as we can gather as a team and, and do an LSUB. So uh, I think if you realize that, that it's not going in the right direction as fast as you can get together and start doing the LSEP and talking about the lagging skills and the unsolved problems, the better. Uh, but we kind of go through, you know, we 
base it on what we always used to do when it was time to meet and talk about children, even um, even though we used to talk about children without talking about lagging skills, um, to kind of trigger that response. But the quicker, the better. Anybody else? I would just so say I, for I, me, I this would agree. is... Oops, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's okay. I was just saying that I agreed. No, no yeah. go ahead. For me, um, as a special ed director, I often am brought into the cases a little bit later when things have really gotten out of control. (laughs) So I have to kind of do some backwards work, and I have to kind of bring them back to that. And sometimes it can be a little bit difficult because they're not thinking that at that point. Um, But so far, every case that I've been into that I've used this, we've been able to shift backwards and go to the ALSEP and really help to identify those skill deficits and see improvements. Um, once we've implemented what we're trying to do using the all-sub. Yeah, and usually, but if a teacher comes to me and says, you know, by the time they come to me or the counselor and, and are starting to discuss concerns, you know, that's the first question we ask is, well, have you sat, you know, have you have you done an all-sub? Have you talked about having a meeting? So that's another kind of red flag if we're coming to the next level, getting support. Yeah. Carol, anything to toss into the hopper here? No, I think I'm on the same uh, same wavelength as as Nina. Just uh, you know, as soon as you can get uh, the relevant team members together to do that, and it's kind of the same kind of time frame, right? We 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 talk about it's not this. You know, we don't necessarily do a complete all sub for you know a kid who one day has one problem and we don't see that problem occur again, right? We're talking about the kids who, like Nina explained, the ones where, you know, the teacher is coming and talking to the administrator or talking to the counselor and, and looking for more um, solutions to help this student. So, yeah, just, just say, okay, when can we get together? Let's do the all up and figure out a, a point of departure. And usually when you're beginning this, when you're beginning the model, you have lots of kids that you're trying to catch play catch up so you can um, spend a lot of time just you know, doing the ultimate, getting together and playing catch up on those kids and then you can start um, you know, pulling in those kids that you're noticing are having some difficulties. Right. So an important point of clarification here because this has come up in a, a few times lately. Do you have to do an ALSA before you do plan B? And the answer is no. Um, I I think that the ALSEP is a great idea for kids who are going to, for what I call the frequent flyers, the kids who've been um, struggling for a very long time, because uh, number one, we need to change people's lenses about them. We need to make sure they're viewing the kid through the prism of lagging skills. And number two, we've got to organize the effort by making sure we're identifying the unsolved problems that need to be solved, and that permits us to prioritize as well. But if you've got a kid in your class, and an unsolved problem comes up, and you know this is a this is a random one, or even if it's a chronic one, but there's only one. You don't need to do an entire ALSA to start solving that problem collaboratively and proactively with that kid. Just start. So I think that people freak out a little bit when they think they're going to need an ALSA mm-hmm. for every kid in the class. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I do my first. <laughs> I would do my first ALSAPs on the 20 or 30 kids in the building who are accounting for 80 to 90 percent of the discipline referrals. That's who I'd start with. And if you think you need an ALSEP on anybody else, it's there if you need it. But those are the 20 or 30 who really need it. I agree. I think that I have often said to people that there's really three different levels of of plan B conversations. The first one is kind of the, the low-level classroom management style conversation where you're having a conversation for the purpose of helping the student to recognize um, <clears throat> how their unsolved problem 
or lagging skill might be kind of affecting just their day-to-day routine. It's it's not it's not uh, pervasive or ongoing, but it's just a great way to set a collaborative tone in the classroom. The second level is a little more frequent, where I, I might be meeting with the student and filling out the ALSUP. And then the third is the the high high level, definitely going to be filling out the ALSUP with a team and really working on solving some very complex problems that could potentially lead to a special ed referral. People ask me a lot about RTI mm-hmm. and behavior, and my point is, if you do this process appropriately it is RTI for behavior. There you go. <laughs> Ready for another? Sure. This one says, after going through this site, a couple of questions were posed from people I work with, and I was wondering if you could answer some. Here's the questions. Number one, what are some of the ways that Plan B teaches skills related to adaptability and flexibility. Um, Well, let's think about that for a second. I'm going to take that one if you all don't mind. Um, When we have uh, two people considering each other's concerns, trying to make sure that they come up with a solution that addresses both sets of concerns, thinking of solutions that will accomplish that mission, and sometimes more than one, moving off of the way that they thought this was going to go, that probably was only going to address their concerns, and on to a solution that is going to address the concerns of both parties, which we now know a great deal about, you are promoting adaptability and flexibility. You are also promoting adaptability and flexibility in the empathy step of Plan B where caregivers are gathering information from the kid about the kid's concern, perspective, point of view on a given unsolved problem. And what promotes adaptability and flexibility there in the caregiver is the fact that caregivers frequently enter the empathy step thinking they already know what's getting in the kid's way on a particular unsolved problem. And that's why I tell people I see so many jaws drop in the empathy step as adults hear that what they thought was getting in the kid's way is not what is getting in the kid's way. The whole process promotes flexibility and adaptability. That was question number one. Anybody want to throw anything further into that before I move on to question number two from this emailer? Ross, can, you, can I just throw out a quick answer on that one, if you could just tell me if sure. I'm wrong? I, a lot of folks asked about this when I was presenting the other day at the conference, and I said, you know, the way I enter this work is I might have a hypothesis about what's going on, but I tend to put that up on the shelf in a jar and get it out of the way so that I can be present as to what the student is ready to share is going on. So the, the, it's more important to understand their concerns and perspective than it is for me to kind of test whether or not my hypothesis is true. And then a lot of times I get surprised. Uh, I I remember back to one little boy who was getting into a fight on the recess playground because he wanted to come talk to me. Mm. So I said, we can just talk without getting into a fight on the playground. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a wonderful little kid, and he just loved to come and talk with me, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, so I had a hypothesis that was totally wrong. And then the second piece is I think it is so hard sometimes for adults 
who are still learning how to use this model to get their concerns and perspective on the table accurately and without biasing the process. So before any solutions can be tried, those two things have to happen because if those, if the two concerns aren't totally accurate, then the solution will never work, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's exactly right. I think you're spot on. It's it's hard, though. I don't, I don't want anyone who's listening to this to think that that's easy to do. And if you muck it up or mess up or whatever, um, you, that's cool. Uh, it, you'll get it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Keep trying. Well, and there's, and don't be there's eight drilling strategies to help you out, and I guess the way I think of it, there's no such thing as mucking it up. Uh, you are, you may not do those eight drilling strategies as well as you might like in the beginning. You may not yeah. feel as fluent in doing this, but at least you're trying to gather information from the kid. And if that's even if that's all you're doing is trying to letting the kid know you're really trying to understand, the model is already working. Yeah, I've never Fair seen enough. a Plan B conversation that you can be messing something up. You know, sitting in empathy right. for even a few minutes with a child is a huge gift. Here's question number two: How does a teacher or parent make sure that the real problem has been revealed with the ALSIP? Uh, you don't know. All you can do is write in the expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting. That's what unsolved problems are. And those are real. I mean, there's no fake unmet expectations. But when we refer to what's really getting in the kid's way, you're going to learn all about that in the empathy step of Plan B. So all you're looking to do on the ALSIP is check off lagging skills and write in expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting that spring to mind when you're thinking of that lagging skill. Um, as I always say, I just said it, there are no fake unsolved problems. But you don't find what's out what's really going on with a particular unsolved problem until you actually start talking to the kid and you ask. Any any further thoughts on that one before we move on to their last one, which is number three? <laughs> Knock them off. All right. Here's number three. What if the lagging skill is not necessarily clear, but the undesirable behavior is? Well... The lagging skill, you're never positive that a, lag, that a particular lagging skill is truly what is contributing to a particular unsolved problem, and that's okay. You've checked off the lagging skill because you believe it to be true of this kid. Then you're writing in unsolved problems that spring to mind when you're thinking of that lagging skill. But there's no definitive link between the two. It's just that you checked off the lagging skill because you felt it to be true. And you wrote in the unsolved problem because that's an expectation the kid is truly having difficulty meeting. So that's definitely true. Um, so it's okay if the lagging skill isn't, that it's not okay if the lagging skill that's contributing to the unsolved problem isn't crystal clear. Here's the rule of thumb. Multiple lagging skills could be contributing to the same unsolved problem. And so, quite frankly, it doesn't really matter which lagging skill is contributing <laughs> to the unsolved problem. What matters is that people are viewing this kid through the prism of lagging skills, um, accepting the fact that there may not be great precision there, but precision there doesn't matter. The precision comes in on the writing of the unsolved problems because how you write the unsolved problem 
is going to translate directly into the words that you use to introduce the unsolved problem to the kid. And as I always say, poorly worded unsolved problems often cause the whole process to come to a dead stop. The precision on completing the ALSIP is on writing unsolved problems well. And there you have it. Any further comments on that before we have to call it a day? <laughs> I think this is really good to have a, a, a conversation like this about some of the more technical ends. But I did love the first question about how do you get the folks in the building on board because mm-hmm. yeah. I think that's so so important. Our motto is it all begins with the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Sorry, who... Go ahead. Uh, that was just me. That was Carol. Sorry, I was just saying, and it, it's never a one and done. You know, you can, <laughs> you can, you know, present no. <laughs> the the philosophy. You can present the uh, the books. You can talk about the process. But even you know, with the group that we have on the phone right now, you know, combined together, I can't even. You know, there's a lot of years of experience, and we're still refining, bringing ourselves back. We still stumble. We still question. We still sometimes, you know, fall back on our old mindsets and patterns, and we're always you know, just trying to, to support each other and support our colleagues to move forward. So it's always a work in progress. You're never done. Every day. Agreed. Absolutely. I agree. So so true. Yep. On that never note, let's start. call it a program. Thank you all for doing this, and um, we'll let both you all know and everybody else know when we're doing this again. Sound good? Fabulous. Great. Thank right, you. Take, take care, Thanks everybody. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.